This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. I invite you, if you have a copy of God's Word, to open to the New Testament book of Galatians, chapter 1, if you're able to stand for the reading of God's Word. Galatians chapter 1, page 972 in the Black Pew Bibles we have there for you. <clears throat> if you're visiting today, perhaps you're here for the baptism, so you're dropping in. We have begun a study in this book, the letter to the Galatians. It was written by the Apostle Paul. And it was written in response to the fact that some Jewish leaders and teachers had come to these churches and they were teaching that faith in Jesus is a good thing. A necessary thing, but it's not quite enough. That to faith in Christ, you must add obedience to the law of Moses. And Paul will have none of that. And so he is writing in response to that. And last week we made it through verse 10. This morning we'll complete the chapter, but I'd like to read the entire chapter. So if you're able to stand, let's hear the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever Amen. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And as we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. That's how far we got last week. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, 
nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. And then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles, well, except James, the Lord's brother. In what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. And then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and while I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ, they were only hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. <laughs> this is the word of our God. Lord, your gospel is the same. May you extend the same mercy and grace in our time and bless the word. Bless the word now in this gathering. Grant to each of us that which we lack or need, Lord, that you know our hearts in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. Well, you may have noticed that Paul has used the phrase, the gospel of Christ. And he's used the phrase, the gospel of Christ, to set up the basic issue in this whole letter, which is, there's only one gospel, and it's the gospel of Christ. And when he says, I would have you know, or perhaps your translation says, I want you to know, this is a formula, a formal formula that marks a new section. And so beginning at verse 11, Paul now begins an extensive defense of his gospel, the gospel of Christ, and his own authority as an apostle. Because we, as we said, you remember, the two are intertwined. If you, the messenger and the message, if you can undermine the messenger, his reputation and so forth, you can undermine the message. And so both were in question, both were being contested. And his defense, his defense of both will continue all the way through chapter 2.14. And he begins it in verse 11 with a thesis statement that frames it all. He says, the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, as the ESV puts it. Those last three words sum up what he's saying. <laughs> it's not man's gospel that I preach. I preach the gospel of Christ. And to support this thesis, he does something really very interesting because knowing Paul, you read Paul Romans, let's say, and others, I naturally would expect him to say, it's not man's gospel. Let me tell you what man's gospel's like. Then I'll tell you what Christ's gospel's like. Some sort of you know, theological, apologetic, but what he does instead is he, he tells his life story. He tells his testimony. He goes into uh, when he heard of Christ and what became of him and, and so forth. You say, why does he do that? Because he knows, he understands, beloved, that his own life, his experience, right, embodies what the gospel is and what the gospel does. He understands that as he explains what's happened to him, 
This will address the matters that were in question, the legitimacy of his gospel, and the legitimacy of his calling as an apostle to preach this faith alone gospel that he preaches. And so the questions would be something like, how did you obtain the knowledge of this gospel you preach, Paul, he says, through a totally unexpected, unsought, sudden revelation of Jesus Christ in the midst of my rebellion. That's how it came to me. How can we be sure that that was true? He says, because it changed my life dramatically. I went from persecutor to preacher immediately. And in the end, the churches of Judea even, where you are, are praising God because of me. Hmm. Well, what role did the Jerusalem apostles have? Paul later will refer to them as the pillars. What role did the Jerusalem apostles have? Surely they had some role. He says, none at all at first. Although I did eventually visit with Peter and James with 15 days. It was only after three years, briefly at that. So what Paul stresses in here is his isolation and his independence from human authorities in the early years of his ministry. In other words, he did not need their authentication because the gospel is its own self-authenticating power of God. It is the power of God under salvation, and Paul knew it because he experienced it. And so what he did is he immediately fulfilled his calling and went to preach the gospel. And what he'll get into in the latter part of chapter two is, well, Paul, did the, did the apostles in Jerusalem ever receive this gospel or affirm it in any way. And in chapter two, he'll say, well, yes, eventually, after 14 years. And even then, I had to straighten out Peter. That's the latter half of chapter two. So what's the point of all this? That the gospel, which is the true gospel, the gospel which has come down to us, the, just, the gospel that says that one is set right before God by grace alone, through faith alone, in the dying and doings of Jesus Christ alone, that that gospel is the gospel, and it is not man's gospel. It comes entirely from God. That's the point. And the purpose of it remains the same. We noted this last week, chapter two, verse five. It is to preserve the truth of the gospel. That's what he's doing. That's what he was doing then, and that's what he did when he wrote, and that's what we're called to do now, is to preserve the truth of the gospel because it alone is the power of God unto salvation. This is our task, and to be sure that we are doing this, that we are preserving the purity of the gospel, we need to make sure we understand the gospel and that we have experienced the gospel, its power. The gospel has concrete historical information, but it is, not contains, but is the power of God under salvation. 
And so it needs to be subjectively experienced as well. And so what I want to do with our time is to, to help us measure where are we in our understanding of the gospel. Uh, I want to sum up what he's saying here in this way. Two qualities of the gospel of Christ that we should see here that emerge from two contrasts. And the first contrast is revelation, not imagination. Revelation, not imagination. The gospel of Christ is the product of divine revelation, not human thinking, not human imagination. He's restating what he said in verse one, right? What he received is not from men, nor through man. In verse 11, he says, not man's gospel. Actually, he begins with three negatives there. Not man's gospel. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Three emphatic negative statements. It's not man's gospel. Literally, not according to man. When he says that, it means it's not, a, not of human origin. It's not based on human reasoning. It's not the way people think. It's not based on human wisdom. It's not based on human ideals or, 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 or philosophies. Who would dream up a gospel like this? It's, man's, it's God's gospel, you see. The true gospel is counterintuitive because grace is so foreign to our human way of thinking. And that's why Paul says it was a stumbling block to Jews. The idea that, that salvation comes alone through the life of this Jewish man named Jesus of Nazareth, that he was crucified on a cross, that that's Messiah, that's the, and was raised the third day, that is a stumbling block to Jews. And it's, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, that it's foolishness to the Greek, the philosophers. You mean to say that you think humanity is all fallen, that we're separated from God, and God's solution is to reconcile us to the life and death of this Jewish man who died on a Roman cross, and then you claim he rose three days later? You see, that, is, that's, that does not come from human thinking or reasoning or philosophy. We want to we wanna merit, in some way, a right standing with God. And to say it's all been done by grace, it's all been achieved in this way. It's a stumbling block to Jews, foolishness, moronic to others. It's counterintuitive. And when he says, I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, Paul is not downplaying or denying the importance of being taught in the church, uh, having teachers in the, in the church. In Ephesians chapter four, he'll say God has given some to be pastors, teachers, and so forth. What Paul's talking about is this. He's describing his initial reception of the gospel he preaches. That's what he's talking about. I did not sit down under anybody when I received this gospel. How did you receive it? Verse 12, he says, through a revelation of Jesus Christ, and he uses the, a term that you'll recognize under Re Revelation, is apocalypsis. The noun, apocalypsis. The noun refers to a divine disclosure of something that was hidden, right? Uh, something that was hidden that suddenly is unfolded, made clear. That's an apocalypsis, if you would. 
ancient, <clears throat> ancient Jewish and Christian understandings of apocalyptic uh, involve <clears throat> dramatic divine inbreaking of God into human history, you know. Boom. And there's this revelation of a spiritual reality. And so Paul says, that's how I received the gospel. He sees, he sees his reception as, of the gospel as one of those great moments in redemptive history where an apocalypse took place. And it was given to him. And so he uses the verb down in verse 16. Uh, uh, it pleased God to reveal his son to me. That's the verb form of that same root word. To make fully known, to disclose suddenly to me this divine reality, which was Jesus Christ. What's Paul talking about? He's, if you've been following, you know he's talking about, there's little doubt that Paul's talking about his experience on Damascus Road <clears throat> when he came to faith suddenly. And uh, that's recorded for us by Luke in Acts chapter 9. <clears throat> it describes it this way, Acts chapter 9 verse 1, Luke writes and says, Saul, that was his Hebrew name, before he was asked to re be referred to as Paul, he says, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest that's in Jerusalem and asked him for letters, permission to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, a reference to faith in Jesus, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. That's where he was. Now as he went on his way, he was on horseback, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. And so they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. That's what Paul's talking about, Galatians chapter one. And to describe that moment as an apocalypsis, right? as a divine revelation underscores again the source of the gospel that he preaches, the authority of the gospel <clears throat> that he preaches. And I'm sure for Paul also this apocalypse is suddenly revealed to him where he actually was standing in salvation history. Messiah's already come and it's me, <laughs> says Jesus. The messianic age has begun. We've arrived at fulfillment, right? The servant of the Lord is here. The root of Jesse is here. The greater David is here, and it's me. And Paul had missed it all, you see. That was the apocalypsis, the revelation of God's son to Paul at that moment. That's the moment that truth of the gospel came to Paul. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, Yeshua, whom you are persecuting.
The truth of the gospel came home at that moment to Paul. <clears throat> Not necessarily like the content, like somebody handed him a, you know, a, a piece of paper with what, here's, the, here's the facts of the gospel. I say this because Paul had to know the, <clears throat> the, the facts of the gospel, the content. Why? Because he was persecuting them for it. He doesn't persecute, you don't arrest people, you don't seek to execute people unless you, you, you know what they're saying. He just didn't understand it, didn't believe it. He knew that they were saying, this Jesus of Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, born to a carpenter? They're saying that he is the Messiah and that the Messiah redeems his people, uh, not from Rome, but from sin. And he did so through uh, crucifixion by the Romans and that then they say he was raised three days later. And that's why nobody can find his body and that, and that you are saved by believing in him and God's very spirit comes and indwells you. Paul says, I've heard enough. <laughs> he says, that's wrong. That's not no Messiah. That's not my Messiah. That's not the Christ. He was a student in the Old Testament. And so the truth of the gospel that Jesus is the Son of God that came to him at that moment. That was his apocalypsis, a divine revelation to Paul of who Jesus really is. A tremendous, tremendous shock. For Paul, it was both a physical apocalypsis and a spiritual one. Physical in this sense, there was a light. He heard the voice. He was blinded. Spiritual in that he did not just hear, but it penetrated his heart. Revealed his son in me is the text. In me is what the text says. I know ESV says too. It was both, obviously, but he's, when he sa says in me, he's, em he's emphasizing the fact that this revelation just penetrated his heart and soul. And from then on, God was revealing his son in Paul, in his sufferings, in his preaching, in, his, in the rest of his life, you see. For you and me, becoming a Christian, conversion also involves an apocalypsis, but only the spiritual one. Not the material, physical one. God still has to reveal to our souls what he revealed to Paul's soul. The identity of Jesus of Nazareth. He is truly the son of God, the savior of the world. Your savior. Uh, he would later write to the church at Corinth in this manner, and he would describe it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul says, even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. And that's where Paul was. He was a very religious man, but an unbeliever in Christ. Unbelievers, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And then he says at the bottom, verse 6, For God who said... Let light shine out of darkness, the creation has shown in our hearts. Now Paul includes them, us. God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When God said, let there be light, creation, he also, that same God says, let there be light, new creation, 
in the heart of these people. So being a Christian involves that. Paul did not make himself a Christian. He was the furthest you can be from that. He was out to kill Christians when God acted upon him by his grace, revealed who Jesus is, and made him a Christian. And that's that second part, again, not the physical action, the light, none of that, but the spiritual part of the spiritual light of understanding is what it means to become a Christian. It is a gift of God, a miracle of grace. And this revelation, Paul says, is from God. This is gospel, he says, and it's not man's gospel. It's a revelation from God. It's not the product of human imagination or thinking. It's just simply what God has done. The second contrast in this account in Galatians 1 is rescue, not religion. That the gospel is about a rescue, which is what Paul experienced. It's not about religion per se. I'm talking the, 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 the religion that teaches this is how you merit something with God. Paul was delivered from that kind of religion. It was about rescue. And so he begins a summary of, of these phases in his life, and he begins, again, he's supporting his thesis. What's his thesis? My gospel came entirely from God. It's not man's gospel. How do we know this? Let me tell you my story. And he tells them this story in three phases. This was my life in Judaism. And then this was what happened to me. This is my conversion and calling. And then lastly, this was my life after my conversion. Again, he knows that his story embodies the meaning and the power of the gospel. And so he begins in verse 13, 14. He says, you have heard of my former life in Judaism. Stop there for a moment. We read that in our 21st century mindset and we think, okay, uh, Judaism uh, and then Christianity. Uh, I, I get that, he's just talking about being Jewish, and he goes, no. At the point that Paul wrote this, the people of God weren't divided. Christianity was the fulfillment of Judaism, and there was, there was this togetherness that they were seeking, but, and the term itself, Judaism, um, is not what you might think it is. It's not just, you know, living under the old covenant and obeying the law of Moses. That term Judaism only appears in the New Testament right here, twice used by Paul, and it was a term that came into use. It came into use during the Maccabean period. It came into use by the Maccabees, who were a group of Jewish uh, uh, people who revolted. Uh, they were very nationalistic, and they wanted to reestablish um, the law of Moses and uh, for, 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 for the, the Hebrew people, and they did so by conquest. And so it was a, Judaism was a nationally defined movement at the time that Paul wrote this, and he uses that term. My life in Judaism doesn't simply mean I was a good little Jew. I was a part of this active group. 
I believed in it. I was ready to take lives for the sake of it. Yeah, that's what Paul was about. This was my way of life, he said. In other words, this is what he, how he thought. This is how he spoke. This is what he believed. This is what he gave himself to. And so he was excelling, not just as a Jew, but as a nationalistic Pharisee, a moralist of the highest order, who was ready to take lives as necessary. In fact, that's what he was about to do. He was committed to, look at the end of verse 16. Um, uh, excuse me. 14, he was zealous. He says, extremely zealous. Zeal is a long, a hard, a strong word, and now you add extremely to it. I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Not just the love of Moses, but the tradition, the network of rules that the Pharisees had added and that Judaism was, was seeking to apply uh, at that time, if even by force. I was extremely zealous for all those things. And he was willing to persecute and even execute anyone who he saw as a heretic and he saw Christians as heretics. He was consumed with what he would later admit, what he would later admit in Romans, that so many of his Jewish friends were filled with, which was Romans 10:2, zeal without knowledge. That was Paul. I was consumed with zeal without knowledge. Heat without light. What is zeal? Well, zeal can be a good thing because it's, it's really neutral in a sense, right? Zeal in itself is, is, is neutral. It matters what you're zealous for. Zeal is a passion to accomplish something, an intense pursuit of something. Athletes can become zealous in the pursuit of a victory or you know, a, a, some title. Musicians can become zealous in the pursuit of some high achievement. And politicians, people can become zealous in the pursuit of power and authority. And when it matters on what your zeal is directed to, when you are zealous for what is good, what is shaped and informed by the truth of God and His Word, that's a good thing. But when you are zealous for something that's warped, something that's wrong, that can be disastrous. And that's where Paul was, you see. He was a very zealous religious man who misunderstood what God was saying and doing at his time. And so it says in Acts 8, again, Luke describes him, says Saul was ravaging the church, Acts 8, 3. He was tearing apart the church, listen to this, entering house after house, like some sort of Gestapo, right? Kicking down the doors and reaching in, looking for people. And he dragged off. You picture families screaming, children screaming. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Such was his zeal. Is there zeal today for wrong things? Well, yeah, right? That's what's happening in our culture with the compartmentalization and of 
these different tribal groups based on self, exalting their views, and then if they, can, if they become zealously charged, then boy, it's trouble. That's what we're seeing, right? Today, there's a similar zeal for all sorts of religious ideas or traditions and, and nationalistic ideas, not only in other parts of the world that we're seeing, but right here in our own country, right? And all of that is what? All of that, what? Is man's gospel. It's not Christ. And it pulls away from the gospel of Christ. It fuels things like what Paul did. In the worst cases, this misguided zeal fuels terrorism, bombings, murder, rape, extortion, prejudice. All these things done in the name of God and done zealously. And that's where Paul was. That's what he was doing. But what are Christians to be zealous for? Paul himself later wrote what Michael read from Titus. He purchased us to make us a people zealous for good deeds, not these other things. So there was Paul. That was his life in Judaism, right? And then suddenly, he was what? Converted. Strictly speaking, God opened his eyes and he converted in the sense of his own faith, but it was a gift of God. He says, but, verse 15, the great transition, another one of those beautiful transitional sentences, right, in the Bible, but God, right? Like Paul would later write, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, right? But God, you know. And here he says, here's where I was. Notice the shift from I and the change in the verbs, right? He said, I persecuted, I violently, I tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism. Uh, so extremely zealous was I. But he, when he, who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, when he was pleased to what? To reveal he called, pleased, reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, you see. A big shift happened in Paul's life, and that's what happened in Acts chapter 9 when he was on that road. The trajectory of his entire life changed there, and it's reflected in all those I, I, I to he, him. I doing this, persecuting, he, pleased, opening eyes, right? Calling, commissioning. Wow. Grace reached down. Love reached down. Mercy reached down. And arrested, arrested this most violent hater of faith in Jesus Christ. And it's neat to see the heart of God in them because he says, when it pleased him to reveal his son to me. <laughs> Don't miss that. I know we emphasize the sovereignty of God, but here's the heart of God. It pleased him 
That verb to please means to take great pleasure in something or someone. It's used of Jesus when God spoke of him and said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And here Paul says, God took great pleasure in saving this creep, (laughs) this violent oppressor. It pleased God. I'm going to say to you today, that it still pleases God. God delights, delights to reach into broken, dark lives and reveal his son to them. Don't think so mechanistically. This is the heart of God. Great pleasure to do that. He delights to do this. That should bring you some comfort and it should give you some hope of some of your own extreme friends and family members you're praying for. It pleased God to break into Paul's life. It may yet please him to touch those lives that you're praying for. It's not beyond him at all. And I love the way Paul describes God here in two ways. He he says, he who had set me apart before I was born, or literally um, from my mother's womb. In other words, just like other Bible, uh, important Bible personalities like Jacob, like the prophet Jeremiah, like the suffering servant of Isaiah 49.1 who is Jesus, like John the Baptist, right? Paul saw uh, God as having had a plan for him just like he did for them before he was even born. When he was in his mother's womb, God already had a plan for Paul's life to make him an apostle. And that was the day when that plan was going to take effect, you see. And I think it's a great blessing, though I know sometimes it comes with difficulty to understand certain doctrines in the Bible, but if you work at this, listen, it's a great blessing to come to understand that, yes, if you're a Christian, you say, well, I know when I believe that, listen, there comes a time when you are blessed, when you recognize that God's hand was in your life long before you were a believer. That his hand was upon you long, long before you ever came to faith. It was on you in all the moments of your life, maybe even the worst moments of your life, like, like Joseph who could say to his brothers when they had incarcerated him, remember, that they sold him into slavery, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. But Paul reaches back even further, right? And every Christian, I think you should come to a place where you can understand the significance uh, of what Paul says when he writes in Ephesians 1, that he chose us. He chose us in him, in the sphere of Christ, before the foundation of the world. That in love, he predestined us unto adoption. And when that moment came, it gave him great pleasure to reveal his son to you. He delighted in that moment. I know, this week as I was reflecting on this, it just touched me a little, thing, I think a little, a little stronger, a little deeper in the reality of the extent and the power of love, God's love, to touch a man like Paul and to take delight in it. And then he described as God as the one who called me by his grace. Remember, Paul uses this verb call 
in a very specific way. He used it in verse 6. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. He says, call me by his grace. Remember, when Paul uses this verb, most of the time what he's talking about, especially in a contest like this, is not just an invitation, but a, a call that accomplishes the very thing that it's aiming at. Right. It's a call that says, come unto me, and then grants the power to come unto him. As Jesus says, no one can come to the Father unless, no one can come to me unless the Father first draws him. And so he says, it was, it pleased God to look at a rebel like me, a persecutor, and then effectually call me into faith by his grace. Favor, you see. In other words, you hear Paul saying, how do I know the gospel is all about grace? <laughs> Look at me. Look at me. Look, look who God called. What had I merited? I was a persecutor, he says. It's a call that penetrated his soul. Well, I think it, I mean, I'm reading between the lines, right? But I think it, it penetrated his soul right when he heard those words I am Jesus. And there was the call. Oh, God. Oh God, he is the Lord. Did not God say, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. So Paul here, he's emphasizing what the, yes, God's sovereign and gracious initiative in salvation that comes through the good news of Jesus Christ. Saving faith begins with God. He gives. It's his gift. Think about this. Paul, we might say Paul was a man of faith. He had a kind of faith. What kind of faith? Faith that there is a God, Yahweh. Faith that the scriptures that he had were true. But he did not have faith that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, the only Savior of the world. Saving faith. That came as a gift of God through grace in the call. It's a faith he exercised, but it was the gift of God when he awakened him and gave him this new birth and new capacity. It's all grace. Later Paul would write, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not itself, right? It is a gift of God. All of that is a gift of God, not as a result of works that no man may boast. It all begins with him. <clears throat> Only divine gracious intervention can explain the change that came over this man called Paul. And that's what he's driving home. And it's a great apologetic for the resurrection and the truthfulness of the gospel. <clears throat> Paul never lost sight of this, you know. He never, he never forgot the graciousness of God in calling him. Later in his life, as he wrote to Timothy, both in 2nd and 1st Timothy, which were later at the end of his ministry, he says some very powerful things. He says in 1st Timothy 1, verse 12, he says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, 
persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, the sinfulness of unbelief. And the grace, here it is, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with, here's what grace brought, with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. When he revealed that apocalypsis of who Christ is, he did so by grace, and that grace brought love and faith in union with Christ. And so he says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, Paul says, look at my story, that in me, as the foremost, right, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. If you think that you've sinned against God beyond his forgiving you, he says, look at me, says Paul. (laughs) If you doubt that he could save someone who you know has done horrible things, look at me, says Paul. I was shown mercy that others would understand the amount of patience and grace and love that God has. (laughs) And then he turns to his life after conversion. The main clause is really right there at the end of verse 16. I did not immediately consult with anyone. His whole conversion story was a subordinate clause to that. But here's the main thing he's getting at, and we'll explain why here. The aim of this whole rest of this paragraph uh, that he's getting at is to make clear that after he was saved on that road to Damascus, during the formative years of his ministry that followed, he did not come under the instruction of the Jerusalem apostles. He did not go to them. It appears to us that they were saying something about this, maybe implying that Paul had been taught by the Jerusalem apostles, but then he decided to abandon that. He decided to to set aside the law of Moses, and he should know better. And so he makes clear that he did not seek their uh, affirmation. He did not need their authentication because the gospel is its own authenticating power. In fact, he says, what I did when I went into Arabia and returned to Damascus, and only three years later that I go and visit Peter briefly and James a little bit, he said, what I had been doing was what he was commissioned to do there in verse 16, that I might preach him among the Gentiles. He goes, so, I don't know what you guys have been doing, but I know what I've been doing. I didn't go consult, I didn't need some counsel, I didn't need some authentication from the pillars of Jerusalem. I met Jesus Christ raised from the dead. And he commissioned me to preach to the Gentiles and I went straight to Arabia. And he said the result of it, after all these years, you're here to judge me. What is the result of it? He says, though I'm not known by sight by the churches in Judea, 
many of them are praising God because the one who used to be a persecutor is now a preacher. So that's what Paul's about here. My life is a testimony. My experience, says Paul, embodies the reality of what the gospel is, that it's not man's gospel, both because of what it says and both because, and because of its power. And my experience authenticates it, says Paul. Now in chapter two I said later, he'll go on and say, well yes, eventually I did get their affirmation, but that was another 14 years. And even then we had to have some correction. So this is where Paul is taking us, beloved. I think the main application is clear. We already said that we are being called, just like Paul was calling the Galatians to cling to the gospel. Chapter uh, five later says, stand firm with the gospel. And once you have confidence in this gospel, it is not human tradition. No man sat down and wrote it up, not even the apostles. It is divine revelation, which is why it's so, it's just so different than how people think. So absolutely counterintuitive. Salvation by grace alone. Remember I said last week, the gospel is something has been done so you may be right with God. It's not, you have some things to do that you might be right with God. There's also some things I think I want to apply just as we finish our time, and that is that two more things, two more important things we learned from this whole account here. One is this. People can misread the Bible very badly. People who know a lot about the Bible can read it very badly. The three major world religions. Judaism, as we refer to it now. Islam and Christianity all make reference to the Bible. Judaism, of course, to the Old Testament scriptures and Islam and the Quran have many Bible quotes and Christianity, of course, to both Old and New Testaments. And then there's all the the cults, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness. They all appeal to the Bible on some level, like Paul was appealing to the Old Testament scriptures, but they all don't see it the same. Why? Because they do not have the true gospel and they've not experienced the power of it. The apocalypsis of who Jesus truly is because it only comes by the grace of God. What I want to underscore is this, that you think about Paul. Paul was not converted. Paul was not converted from a background of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, like me, right? No. Paul was a very religious, moral person who was a devoted student of the Old Testament scriptures. And he still had it all wrong. And he was trapped trapped in man's gospel, not man's gospel of immorality, but 
trapped in man's gospel of religiosity, trapped in man's gospel of, of merit, of doing, of earning. And he would have missed it all if Christ had not reached into his heart. You know. Some of you may still be trapped. You don't realize it, you see. How can you be right with the living God? It's not by outdoing anybody else in this room. It's not by improving yourself or doing better. It's about realizing you can do nothing and in the gospel, trusting Christ. A second thing that we learn is that the past can be a very powerful thing in someone's life. It was in Paul's, right? But it does not need to shape who you are forever. And if, if you're not careful, some of you here, if you're not careful, you can allow your past to become all controlling in your present. You can allow past things you've done, like Paul, insolent, persecutor, murderer, that's what he was, a hater. You can allow the bad things you've done in the past to keep controlling you in the present. Or you can allow the bad things that have been done to you in the past. Yeah. But what Paul's Here's what I want you to see, what Paul's testimony tells us that such is the gospel of God that one, one genuine interaction with Jesus Christ can change the entire trajectory of your life. That's what happened with Paul. It all was swept aside and he went to Arabia (laughs) preaching the very one he was trying to destroy. And as Christians, today we're gonna come to the Lord's table. As Christians, we keep coming back to the gospel. We never outgrow it, you see. And we are reminded whatever we've done less the last time that we had the supper, whatever we're struggling with, you see. Again, one real meeting with Christ under the gospel by his grace can reset it all. Something's been done. And God's the one who did it. Praise the Lord. Let's pray and we'll prepare for the Lord's table. Our Lord and God, what a powerful picture you have given us, Lord, of the immensity of your love, your grace, your mercy, the power of it in a person's life, and though, Lord, we know that all our lives, all our stories won't involve that, that kind of physical, powerful encounter with you, we thank you, Lord, those of us who are Christians, for that spiritual revelation to our hearts that Jesus is the Savior. And, Lord, I know there's some in this room, I don't doubt there's some, Lord, who have yet to, to, to receive Christ, I pray, Lord, that in your mercy and grace you would extend that very same delightful pleasure that you showed in the life of Paul and open eyes and hearts here. 
Lord, give us all faith that Jesus has done it all. And as we come to the table, Lord, meet with us. Meet with us who are in Christ in a very sweet and very sweet way, Lord. May we sense, Lord, your love, your presence, your work in us, Lord, as we gather together. In Christ's name, amen.